Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for January 28, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all back. We took a week off last week. Um, I guess you all read... This has been the worst flu season, and I guess recorded flu season history, and it's gotten at least one of us, myself, and it's gotten um, many of our prospective guests that we're going to have on in future weeks, but we won't uh, violate HIPAA uh, here on the podcast, but just know that the (laughs) um, flu has been going around, to say the least. Uh, Have y'all been um, healthy and secure? I've been healthy, but I had a flu shot. Good. Well, so did I. Didn't didn't take this time, uh, Tim. <laughs> yeah, I've had a flu shot every year for the last twenty five years, and I've never had the flu one time. Let me knock on laminated wood here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've had the I've not had the flu shot, not had the flu, and I've had the flu shot. I've had all mixes and variations, but this year it got me. But it wasn't too bad. But enough about that nonsense. We're not a bunch of old folks discussing our medical ailments. Um, Let's talk about a little politics. And while we took our little uh, time off, the government shut down. I don't think because the government shut down, we got shut down. Um, But but the government went through a really extended weekend shutdown um, and then reopened. And really, we're not going to talk about the ins and outs of that. We're going to look at the political fallout, if you will, and if there will be any. Um, Catherine, what do you think the the political side of this will be? Well, I think at first there was some criticism of the Democrats because they, at least from my echo chamber, because why did they bother, you know, pushing, you know, for the shutdown and then, you know, fighting for DACA and then agree on Monday to, uh, you know, just, you know, do a continuing resolution and, it just seemed kind of pointless, but I think the fact that it was so short and um, didn't, I mean, I'm, of course, I'm sure it had impact on some people, but it wasn't, you know, one of these drawn out things. I think the political uh, blowback will probably be very minimal unless we see something else happen with the, uh, on February 8th. Yes, and that's obviously something to think about is it, it was a very short-term fix that could happen again. Uh, Tim, what are your thoughts? Uh, In the immediate aftermath of this, just speaking purely political, Mitch McConnell kind of took the Democrats to school. Uh, On the Friday of the vote for the shutdown, there was like five Democrats that broke ranks and voted with the Republicans. Uh, Schumer just couldn't hold them all. Uh, McConnell saw this. He was able to leverage this into an agreement, if you want to call it that, with with <laughs> Democrats, who essentially, I think, 
panic. Uh, I, I don't know why they went through this if they were going to uh, basically give away the farm uh, after it was over. They they essentially got nothing uh, from from this in the way, way of an agreement. I mean, they're, that's laughable. McConnell agreed to think about doing something, and we know from experience how far that goes. Uh, uh, now, now, interestingly enough that the Republicans and Trump still got, you know, most of the blame for the actual shutdown. Um, the, the Democrats, uh, seem to have no leverage in this thing. The Republicans who never would allow a vote on uh, CHIP, uh, the Children's uh, Health Insurance Program, uh, they played that card here, uh, saying, oh, look at those awful Democrats not funding the the poor Children's Health Insurance Program. Uh, They knew that the average person would uh, pick Six million children over the eight hundred thousand, you know, DACA folks, um, and uh, I, I think I agree with Catherine. Considering the craziness that has happened just in the last few days, who's even talking about this shutdown yeah. right now? Besides, you know, nobody. Um, that that's about that's about where it stands. I think it was a story for a few days, and you can depend on Donald Trump to make something else the story the next day, which he did. So, yeah, I, I don't think that um, it's going to be thing that long lasting polling comes out of it. Um, I guess you could argue that because Republicans actually, you know, took some action on ship, the Democrats got something out of it, and obviously that was kind of going into it. The Republicans added, I guess, a little bit of a sweetener um, to maybe avoid a shutdown. But somebody made a good point: is this is just not a good um, move that Democrats can really take with shutting down government. Republicans do that because Democrats actually believe in government and want it to function, and Republicans really don't care. You know, the old Grover Norquist shrink it down to where you can drown it in a bathtub. Um, therefore. Democrats actually think full depend on government, and so they don't want to shut it down, um, inverse true of Republicans. Catherine, how true do you think that is and why this is not even a good bargaining chip or a good power play for Democrats in you know, weeks and months moving forward? Well, um, I think it's funny that you know Republicans claim to want smaller government, but they seem to – on certain things, want to grow the government. So, um, yeah, I think this is going to – I mean, I think a lot depends on what happens in on next week or whatever, next week, I guess, um, when or when they uh, – when February 8th rolls around and we see how, how – you know, what the solution is for what, – what solution they come up with for DACA if they do or if they even discuss it, you know, whatever happens with that. And then how the each party responds to it. Do we see another shutdown? Do the Democrats hold their ground? Do the Republicans, you know, play some more further tricks? Who who knows? But I think in the long term, it's probably not going to – if we can resolve it, if they resolve it, it's probably going to be negligible. I think most people don't remember 
I mean, I mean, this whole smaller government thing is is something that the Republicans claim, and they do like to talk about, you know, lower, you know, reducing regulations and reducing taxes, but ultimately they, you know, find that it's very difficult to do that, right? I mean, it's just very difficult. There's a lot of things that we, that our government does that can't just, you can't turn it off without having, you know, severe impact on, you know, safety and security and, um, you know, uh, smooth running of logistical infrastructure and all that kind of stuff, so... It's a good good talking point, but it doesn't really work. Yes. Well, um, Tim, do you think that um, it's just hard for Democrats who believe in government to use shutting it down as a, a power play? Yeah, it is. And and also, when when you're the minority party, why why do such a thing uh, right now? If you're not going to stay the course. And actually get something out of it, and and I I know they're all trying to put the best spin on it. But they didn't get nothing out of this. They they didn't get a thing. This was all about DACA. They didn't get a thing out of it. Uh, Mitch McConnell promised that perhaps there'll be a, you know, a, they'll bring something up and debate immigration. Perhaps I don't don't hold your breath, guys. Uh, no, Republicans do interest me with their small government rhetoric. I, I keep they just pound the government. I wonder why they keep running, wanting to get in. That's what I always If they say. don't like the government, why are they out there running? And when they're in the government, why do they spend money like drunken sailors? You know, they spent they spent twenty four million dollars on get this refrigerators for Air Force One. Twenty four million dollars. Huh. Oh well. Well, the other I piece that no we didn't mention. The right. other piece that we didn't mention was when the government shut down in what was that two thousand? Was it thirteen? Yes, that was the last. They one. kept the military budget. They didn't cut the military. Like, they didn't um, shut down the military. But in this one, they did, which I thought was really interes-hmm that this, you know, pro-military you know, Republican Party uh, chose to make that decision when shutting, it, when shutting down. They could not yes, cut so their just pay because uh, – President Obama had signed an executive order prohibiting that from happening in the event of another government shutdown. Thanks, Obama, right? Right. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, if you're in a war, which, you know, we still, unfortunately, and technically are in, you know, two war zones, um, the never-ending wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, you can imagine, you know, not funding your army um, in a time of war, that's that's just kind of unfathomable. Um, well, let's kind of transfer over to the the immigration DACA side of it, because obviously that's the you know what what'll happen differently on February eighth, and um, th- that may you know fall into the politics. One of the theories was is there were certain states where senators are coming up, um, Democratic senators in Republican states, 
that if they were to lose, you're not going to retake the Senate. And that's what it's really all about at this point is you've got to get real power to stop things. And so you've got to control hopefully two chambers, but definitely one. And you have Heidi Heidenkamp in North Dakota, uh, Joe Manchin in um, West Virginia, some other places as well, Claire McCaskill in Missouri. How much do y'all think it played in that uh, folks were like, well, if it's seen as, you know, valuing um, illegal immigrants over uh, children, over our military, over whatever else, that those folks would have been vulnerable, and that's why that they kind of backed down. Tim, what do you think of that? Well, it's very obvious that if you look at the five senators who voted uh, – with the Republicans uh, against the shutdown, uh, you, you'll, you'll see some of those same names there. Uh, and, and obviously some of them are very nervous running in states that, that Trump won and in some cases uh, run very well. Um, I don't know what might happen on February 8th, but I'm thinking that a lot of these senators just this time won't won't do it. Uh, I, I don't I don't believe they'll they'll have the votes for a shutdown if they wanted to, and so I don't I don't look for it to happen. Uh, but but Captain, what will happen? What else will happen? Will it be another continuing resolution, or or, or what will they do? Yeah, Catherine, um, uh, you want to respond to that or postulate a guess? Well, I think um, it's going to, uh, unfortunately, it's sort of on Mitch McConnell about whether we, or whomever, about whether we there is actually any discussion about DACA, about DACA. And, you know, you know DACA is pretty popular, like polling, people – you know, we that people want to stop um, illegal immigration generally, but they don't want to send people home. They want don't want to send these um, DACA recipients home. Generally, that's what the polling, at least that's what they were saying on the this week with George Stephanopoulos this morning. So I'm not sure, but 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 that's general polling in these individual states where these republic where these Democrats are running. It may be different. So I think it's very um, tricky for these um, Democrats who are running, but we all, you know, we all want authenticity from these these people. And I, I mean, you sort of hate to see them just running scared. I think nobody likes to see that. So I don't know. No. I think it's, a lot is oh. going to depend on what happens before the vote, how much you know, uh, negotiations, how the negotiations go, if they. Are part of the discussion at all? Yeah, well, you know. Oh, go ahead, Tim. I, I was just going to say, if you are going to go to that extent to shut the government, that you you at least should be prepared to try to hold out and get something out of it. Exactly. What did they get out of it? And if they're not going to get anything out of it, 
Why do it? Now, I don't know if they have the 60 votes to overcome a filibuster, uh, especially if nothing happens with, uh, you know, DACA or anything like that. Uh, Trump, Trump, who knows what he'll sign from day to day. He says he'll sign something. You get over there with it. He won't sign it. Um, they keep trying to forge uh, compromises. And before they even get to him, he's saying it's not acceptable. It's almost like Trump would love to have a contentious shutdown or something like this. And I believe he would. He likes this sort of thing, this just yeah. fighting it out and stuff like that. And, uh, politically speaking, McConnell might might like it, even though he would never admit to it, because you know he, it, it, it might help him in the midterms. Well, and this is part of the polarized, you know, primary system we have. One thing that was pointed out is in a Republican primary, if you are even seen as anything remotely soft on immigration which, you know, reaching a DACA deal in a Republican primary would be, then this is something that can get you beat. I noticed that I thought it was kind of ironic in two ways. Uh, somebody that came out against Donald Trump to the right was Texas Senator Ted Cruz. One, in Texas, which used to be part of Mexico, which has a very high Hispanic population, and by and large people in Texas, uh, the Mexican culture is woven in in a way that they enjoy Tex-Mex food and all these different things, they're they're prideful of. That's not a really anti-immigrant state. And then Ted Cruz, hence the surname Cruz, you would think that he would be more understanding of um, the plight of immigrants and, and what have you. But um, that was maybe a sign that Ted Cruz, even in Texas, maybe he's scared that someone would run against him. And I'm not so sure – filing hadn't closed in Texas because I know their primary is very, very early. Um, but I, I found that ironic and, and that overall point that you're vulnerable if you um, in a Republican primary, if you uh, support any kind of immigration, how much do you think that plays in, Catherine? I don't know. Matthew Dowd this morning on, on George Stephanopoulos said if it weren't for illegal what did he say? If it weren't for Undocumented workers, air conditioning, and oil. Texas wouldn't be Texas. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that's true in many states. I don't. I, I haven't seen polling in in Texas, um, so I don't know. But I would. I would think that would not help him in Texas. But I don't know. Yeah. Well. Well, Tim. Uh, Catherine brings up Matthew Dowd, and of course we know he deals in something called common sense and reason, mm-hmm. and that's usually short in a lot of Republican primaries. Um, but how much do you think, you know, being seen as moderate or, you know, whatever on immigration can hurt your chances in a Republican primary? In this polarized world we now have. And 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 it really is a polarized, uh, just almost culture now. You would have to call it in this country. 
in Republican primaries, in Republican districts, in red states, you don't worry about even the other party. You worry about someone coming in to the right of you and stealing your thunder. And and as a result, the party has gotten more and more and more and more extreme. Now, a lot of them try to say, well, the Democrats have done the same thing. Oh, horse hockey, they have. We, we have nothing in our par- party to compare with some of these people and some of the just absurd things they're saying and doing. Uh, and and Cruz, in, in, in his case, that's exactly what he's worried about, someone coming into the right of him and stealing his thunder. No, I can't explain with his heritage him having the political beliefs he has, just as uh, I could not explain Clarence Thomas, for instance, to you, and the political beliefs that he has. But, you know, that happens occasionally, and Cruz is... Cruz is the genuine article when it comes to that. So, you know. Yeah, he is definitely a pure, uh, true believer um, yeah. in conservative politics, uh, no matter what. Well, um, one more point on this um, that I have, and that is I just don't understand, for the life of me, and this has been before Donald Trump and Trumpism came along, we know that there's a number of immigrants that we let in legally through the system from Mexico. There's other countries included too, but let's just do Mexico. There's a number. And we know there's a number of work or people that come in to fill jobs in our workforce. Those numbers are nowhere close to each other. The number of folks that come in and work in many different industries, you know, directly from Mexico, legally and illegally, is far higher than the number legally we let in. Why in the world, as one of the first steps, do we not match up those numbers far better? And I know it might be impossible to get them you know, exactly one for one, but if we got within, say, 5,000 of that number, 10,000 of that number, it'd make a lot more sense. Then if you wanted to say, okay, we're going to um, enforce immigration laws uh, moving forward because those numbers match, that'd make a lot of sense to me. Catherine, what do you think? I'm sorry. I, I must have misunderstood the question. I, I'm really sorry. So you're saying that there's different job classifications where we have no, – no, no, what I'm saying is is we know that there are um, – we, we let in a number of folks from Mexico legally, and we know that a lot of folks are coming in illegally to fill jobs that would probably go unfilled. No, I mean, I'm not saying that somebody come from, come from Mexico and then – become a neurosurgeon immediately. I'm just saying that we know within our workforce how many people are coming in and, and, and getting jobs even illegally. Can we not somehow match those numbers of people up so more people could come legally here and we wouldn't have as many illegal oh, immigrants because we've kind of solved the problem? Um, I, I, that would be nice, but I, I think there's you know a whole bunch of um, criteria that um, play into getting a work visa. For instance, there's no work visa to come into this country as a landscaper. You can't get a work visa to be a landscaper or a you know short order cook. There's no visas for that. 
Well, so, and th- there um, needs to be. That's part of the fix. Right, right, exactly. I mean, it, yeah. that's why when people say, well, they should come in legally, there's really no way for the, you know, the large number of people who work, in, especially in service industries. You know, there's plenty of visas for, you know, like you said, like scientists and, um, you know, professional or skilled trades, like more professional, like scientists, mm. doctors, stuff like that, nurses probably. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, the the immigration system is um, way behind the needs that we have for uh, workers in this country. It's way behind. And, and that's one of the big problems, and that's what a lot of the um, immigration um, – advocacy organizations, you know, talk about and try to try to you know, move legislation that way, but it's it's just a it's a messed up system. Yeah, it seems like that's the first step. Well let's go ahead and move and change um directions. We have our guest, our, our longtime uh Tennessee political expert, John Rowley, on the phone. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, John. Hey, team. How are we doing tonight? Yes, first time in 2018. Doing good. Um, well, well, let's kind of start off since it, since it is 2018. Since we last talked, um, Tennessee was not a state that I think a lot of people thought was a tremendous pickup target for Democrats. But then Phil Bredesen, very likely the most popular uh, recent Democratic popul- uh, politician, said he'll run for U.S. Senate. Um, just give us a full analysis of how that changes the complexion of that race. Oh, it's a huge game changer. The last time, in 2006, the last time Bredesen was on the ballot, not that long ago, he carried every county in Tennessee, every county. So, um, I mean, it's it's been a huge shot in the arm for Democrats. Um, I think there's a sense that the Senate race is is – you know, a toss-up now, if not leaning um, toward uh, Bredesen, if Marsha Blackburn's the opponent, and uh, it's got you know some people coming out of the woodwork to come for the run for the legislature, and has people more optimistic about uh, you know the governor's race. So, I mean, he's he's hands down the most successful statewide figure in the last 25 years um, in Tennessee, and. Uh, so uh and you know he he also can put money together he's he's a uh you know successful healthcare entrepreneur and he's got fundraising ability and uh self funding ability so it's uh it is um it, it's a game changer yes well before we move on to anything else and I'm gonna let Catherine and Tim talk about those parts of the Senate race and other things any chance that someone uh runs against him possibly from to the left um, and challenges him and kind of throws a kink in the primary system part of this. Well, there was already a military veteran, a guy named uh, Mackler, who was running and had raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. And within a couple of days of Bredesen getting in, he had pretty well, uh, um, you know, uh, put his tent under his backpack and headed home. And uh, so he'd, he'd put up a pretty credible effort. So, um, there, you know, there's definitely some chance chance that he'll get a little grief from the left, but I think they have done a pretty masterful job of uh, kind of handling their 
their uh, left and right flanks so far and have a lot of momentum. Yes, well, I'm going to go ahead and quickly pass this over to Tim and Catherine to, to talk about the maybe the Republican side of this, other races that you see and what have you. Tim? Uh, good evening, John. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, yes, sir. About this about this Senate race, the numbers still look a little imposing. Donald Trump carried this state by a little more than 26 points. The last time Senator Corker was on the ballot, he won by almost 35 points. Um, even in a wave election, don't those numbers look a little bit, I don't want to say intimidating, but a little tough to overcome? Well, I mean, a little bit, but I mean, the, the, uh, uh, I mean, those numbers are much more of a commentary on probably Hillary Clinton's um, standing and Corker didn't really have um, much of an opponent the last time he ran. I mean, the, the, the mm-hmm. real race Cork, Corker had was in 06, the same time Bredesen was winning every county, and that was with Harold Ford um, Jr., and that was, a, that was mm-hmm. one of the most competitive races in the country. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, Phil, Phil Bredesen is uh, – uh, there, there's nobody on the Republican side – that uh, um, was uh, doing anything but uh, going for the Prozac after uh, uh, Bredesen got in. So you know, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, listen, it's t- it's Tennessee. So I mean, nobody's nobody nobody should be measuring the drapes for uh, for the U.S. Senate <laughs> office. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it, it, um, it takes it from essentially a lost cause to a jump ball, and and maybe yeah. even one. I think if if Marshall um, Blackburn's the nominee, it it weans Democrat. If if uh, Fincher wins, I think he would be pretty tough to beat. Probably leans a Republican if if he can get through. But he's down by thirty to forty to fifty points to her in the primary right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now uh, that was the next question that I was really going to ask you about, and it was about Marsha Blackburn. I know that she hails from. Uh, the most Republican county in your state there, just south of Nashville, in the Franklin area. And is she just essentially a little bit too polarizing a figure in a statewide race, or what, what do you think? Um, I think I think she's just such a big numbskull that you can't really hide in the U.S. Senate race. I mean, I mean – I mean, she was. I mean, you know, she was Sarah Palin before Sarah Palin was cool, and she's less. Uh-huh. She's she 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 has she has fewer uh, deft PR moves than Sarah Palin. I mean, she's just. She, I, I did a race against her twenty some years ago. It's the only one she ever lost when she ran for Congress. She's just a one of the most vacuous numbskulls in politics today. And <laughs> you can get away with that being a state senator, which she was, or a, or a member of Congress in the most Republican seat in the state. Um, but in a U.S. Senate race against the guy of the caliber of Phil Bredesen, I mean, you can run, but you can't hide. I mean, just and, <laughs> and uh, so. It's it's also probably a symbol of where politics is 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 she may just be unbeatable in a primary because she kind of fakes right and goes right and uh, Uh but uh, but I've also done a race against Fincher and he's extraordinarily 
has an extraordinarily good profile, um, and he's raised almost as much money as she has. And uh, so I don't I don't know if he can get around her, but he'll he's going to make it a heck of a race, I think, at some point. Oh, well, that's interesting. I, I may be back for a couple of more questions, but right now I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on tonight. We appreciate it. We're always Absolutely. interested in our, neighbor, our neighbors in Tennessee. Um, what what are what do you think are going to be the themes of this election? Like, what are they going to run on? Is it going to be like anti-Trump, Trump? Is it going to be, you know, health care? Like, well, what do you think are? I, I think I think health care will probably be up there because you know I mean it's uh, it's a better issue for Democrats than it's been in the past. Bredesen's a health care executive who's kind of got a kind of a moderate history on health care. I mean, he, he, he knocked a bunch of people off of tin care and then brought them back on. And so he, he was seen as a pretty fiscally conservative and he had some problems on the left at the time. So he definitely feels like he has something to bring to the table on health care on opioids. I mean, Blackburn was, uh, essentially pushed through this this opioid industry, um, drug industry bill that 60 Minutes uh, slapped them upside the head about, and that the, the Trump nominee already went down over it. So that's not going away. I think you'll hear about that in the primary, that she was kind of the uh, the biggest flag carrier for uh, – on uh, uh, that uh, that bill that just breezed through Congress, and then uh, you know Bredesen obviously be able to talk about that as well. So I think opioids and healthcare will be interesting, and then just um, I think you know Bredesen's always had a somewhat bipartisan message as a as a moderate business guy. So I think he would he would like to frame it as, hey, well, you know the common sense people of Tennessee can be with me and the and the nutty knuckle dragon tea party people can be with Marsha Blackburn and you know, I'll I'll take my <laughs> chances. I think I think that's how he would like the race to to be run, whether that'll be the winning strategy or not in two thousand eighteen, you know, we'll see. Do you think are there does he have um weaknesses that they'll go after or is he pretty strong all around? <clears throat> um I mean I th- I think just the, they'll try to turn him into, you know, some version of whatever the caricature of Pelosi, Clinton, Obama that they want to turn him into. I mean, I think that'll be part of it. Um, And, you know, I mean, he's had he's had businesses. He's been a governor. He's been a mayor. I mean, I'm sure there'll be something that they can uh, uh, hone in on that they uh, um, I mean, he's got he's got a long public record. And uh, yeah. So, uh, um, but I, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's anything but that's there's glaringly like, out of touch with Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, that that sounds, you know, very promising then. And then yeah. My, yeah. my, you know, I always have to ask this: <laughs> How's the um, Democratic Party doing in Tennessee? And do you think they're going to be able to help with this race, or are they dead in the water like well, so many of the state yeah, parties? I mean. I mean, mo- mo- any race of this scope, it kind of rises and falls in any state with the candidate and the campaign yeah. and some of the national people that come in. I mean, I mean, between the governor's race and the U.S. Senate race, I mean, there may be 80, 90, 120 million dollars spent primary and general in all these races. So, um, I mean, I don't care what kind of party chairman you are in Georgia or Tennessee. There's only there's only so much you can do. But I, I you know, I think. 
a lot of the the energy that that's that's coming around after Trump's inauguration, after 2017 Democratic electoral successes is going to be helping the party. And and hey, having Phil Bredesen run and raise a bunch of money is will, will be helpful for the party too. Yeah. So I think I, th- I think you know I mean uh, the, the Democratic Party doesn't lift up Phil Bredesen. He he'll he'll probably lift up the Democratic Party. And uh, the uh, and you know the the last thing I would say is. I'm usually the skeptic, the cynic. You know, when the Democrats get around the table and start talking about the year ahead, if you imagine that scene in Star Wars where Darth Vader is, you know, like uh, choking somebody, I'm usually the guy choking somebody because, you know, because everybody's too overly optimistic about things. But I'm, uh, you know, don't be too proud of this technological terror you've created. It's, uh, but, um, uh, uh, so I'm usually the cynic. I'm super optimistic about 18 and what it means. I mean, if you look at 2017 and analyze probably the top 100 elections that just happened, from Doug Jones to Virginia to Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, all the different elections that just happened, if you analyze them – now, now Hillary's data team hasn't done this analysis. It's just me, mind you, but – we won every Democrats won every one of those elections like a hundred to nothing. I mean, if it was a jump ball, they won it. And so, neither party in my twenty plus years of being in the business has had a day or or election like the Democrats just had. So, I mean, it, it could be it could be bigger than we even imagine right now. So, that's uh, well. Um, so from, I'll keep my cynic hat on. The voters' ears. <laughs> no, I'm a, it's uh, I, I'm, I'm allowing my I'm a, this cynic is allowing himself to imagine some uh, wild success, but uh, you know a lot, lot of a lot of candidates still to recruit and dollars to raise and races to run and win. So <laughs> okay, I'm going to pass it back to David. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Well, um, John, I'm going to change gears, but I bet him will. The political races after me. Um, I noticed that this past week the Amazon headquarters list came out. It was 20 cities, so obviously there's far more cuts to make um, to get them done to one, but they had a big, pretty big list. And I looked at that because I, I guess you've read that, and pretty much everybody's thinking Atlanta's like one of the top three cities. And um, mm-hmm. being a native Metro Atlanta, I'm rooting for my hometown. Um, but then I, if I said, you know, geographically, if I didn't come to Atlanta, what's the biggest competition? And you see Nashville on the list. In the southeast, mm-hmm. and my thinking is if they're wanting to separate Pacific Northwest Seattle, you come to the southeast and the other side of the country. Now, obviously, Miami's as far away as they can get, but there's a lot of water surrounding Miami on a lot of sides, whereas Nashville and Atlanta, you've got some roads that run mm-hmm. different directions. Um Tell me, you're in Nashville, you're in Tennessee. What's Nashville's chances and kind of what's their hook and plan for recruiting that 50,000 job machine? Yeah, um, I mean, we, we, we definitely have a uh, have a uh, uh, a sales pitch that people are are buying right now. I mean, I mean, you know, part of it is is 
the culture of Nashville that's very creative and music and and uh I mean I think per capita about as many people earn a living through some creative pursuit in Nashville as any city in the in the country somewhat due to our size somewhat due to music and film and everything that's here um but uh I mean you know Nashville's just been on fire the last 5 or 6 years um culturally and from a business recruitment standpoint so I think I think we there's kind of a vibe here that might be something that we have with music and other things that might give us a little bit of an edge on Atlanta. Geography-wise, I mean, we're three hours from from FedEx, three hours from uh, uh, UPS, which is in Louisville and and Memphis, respectively. So when you're in the the, uh, kind of transportation, trying to get things out sector, we're kind of in a geographic sweet spot, and you can get to about anywhere in the U.S. by land or by air very efficiently from Nashville too. You know, I think that some of the knocks against us are, are the, the public transit situ- situation and affordable housing situation. If those are truly high on their list, I think, you know, we're way behind on both fronts. There's a transit, uh, big uh, rail transit thing that's on the ballot in Nashville, May 1. I think it's really going to have a tough time passing and, uh, and it doesn't even include any of the surrounding counties and whatnot. But, um, I mean, you know, Nashville's got one of the better pitches when it comes to trying to land things from, we just have a, you know, got a new MLS soccer team. So, I mean, we've got one of the better pitches out there, but, you know, this is also one of those be careful what you wish for things. I mean, it just (laughs) feels like you may may have to give away so much of the farm that, uh, you know, it may be one of those dog caught car deals and, uh, um, so I don't know that I'm really rooting for it, to be honest with you. I mean, as somebody who, who may be here for a long time, I mean, there's, we already estimate that there's, that we're going to add, uh, you know, I mean, another million people in the next, uh, decade or two. So I'm not sure from an infrastructure standpoint, we're set up for it. I've been through Atlanta a lot. I don't know that you guys are either, but, uh, I, I think, I think, I think from afar, your mass transit and things like that look a lot better than, than Nashville does. So, so that now that my, I'll take my chamber of commerce hat off, but that's the best I can do. Team. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and, and honestly, it, I, seems to want a big city. And part of me, if, if I could, you know, given my sense worth, I'd say, why don't you find a really small city that you could completely transform and rebuild um, based on what you've got. And I don't know if he wants to go geographical. Let's say one to go to Georgia. If you were to go to Albany or uh, Waycross or some small city, uh, you could just completely re- you know reshape what's going on there, uh, and people would come. Um, I think it's yeah. that big that it would be like a huge magnet. But that's just a crazy theory, and I know no one but me fights. Well, that. and um, I think another one of their considerations is what kind of workforce is there. So I'm not sure the Seattle to Waycross pipeline is about to open up. So <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to break. Not, I don't want to uh, break. I don't want to break any hearts, but you know, from Puget Sound to the swamp, I don't. I just don't know if that's where Amazon will end up. So. <laughs> but, but I do think that it would pull things, and I'm sure when the NASA opened up in Nashville, Tennessee, there weren't rocket scientists left and right in Nashville, Tennessee either. But if you build it, they came. To quote, um, yeah. paraphrase 
sold the dreams. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Tim because he sounds like he's got lots of questions. Tim? Oh, yes. Um, 2002. Well, that's the last time you had both an open U.S. Senate and open governor's race. Well, hey, the Mm -hmm. governor's race turned out pretty good that year. So you got an open governor's race this year. Will it be competitive? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it'll be it'll be competitive. There's two good Democrats running, and then the Republicans are just going to slice and dice each other to bits. I mean, they're already um, there's already somebody attacking Congresswoman Diane Black on the radio, and and mm-hmm. there'll be more. And 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 you've got some you got at least three campaigns with candidates who are going to spend millions. I mean, you know from. Uh, Bill Lee, who's already on TV, to Diane Black, who's a congresswoman, to Randy mm-hmm. Boyd, who's got a, a business and is probably going to put tens of millions in the campaign. So the and that doesn't even count the Speaker of the House, who's in the race, will raise millions of dollars. Beth Hallwell. So the Republicans are going to be, they are going to reenact the end of a Quentin Tarantino movie, and and uh, <laughs> and it's a late pri- it's a late primary. So after they have their uh, you know, circular firing squad. Hopefully, we'll have a good Democrat ready. Um, yeah. Uh, now, ready and, yeah. You 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 mentioned uh, Congress critters moving up, and and they are mm-hmm. as, as they always do to run for mm-hmm. higher office, uh, which has created some openings at the congressional level. Now, I know that as in our state, yours is like surgically gerrymandered. Uh, right, but even with that, there are some openings, uh, like in Black Six District. Um, mm-hmm. Any pickup opportunities? Well, there is um, uh, the the Black race is kind of, her seat is kind of undeveloped right now. Um, it's, uh-huh. uh the um it's it's a, a little surprising i i would look to to see if a couple other people don't get in the uh there's an interesting guy running in blackburn's old seat which is which is pretty tough a guy named uh justin canoe who's uh came to, came to tennessee he was a screenwriter he was on the amazing race he's raised a, a decent amount of money and whatnot and um the uh uh, I, I, I'm a little surprised somebody's a Democrat's not in the black seat. You know, Scotty Nell yeah. Hughes, that's one of uh, <laughs> one of Trump's <laughs> people, is is running. And then we we've got decent people who've raised some money. There's a teacher in the fourth district, the Scott Desjardins district. And if you remember Desjardins, he's the one oh, pro yeah. pro life, pro life with his wife, pro choice with his mistress, and he's just you know <laughs> pres- prescribed you know meds to his patients he was having an affair with and somehow he's he's they haven't taken his medical license there's a woman named mariah phillips that's raised a, a good chunk of money there and uh um the uh there's an open seat district two um jimmy duncan's leaving um there's a there's a woman that's a environmental activist that's running there so it's i think i think we've got um we've got a number of credible people running and may it may depend on 
how wounded the Republicans are again after they Quentin Tarantino each other in their primary. <laughs> mm. um, Is that a verb? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and so I'm gonna, and, and so I'm gonna put you on the spot. Is Marsha Blackburn gonna win the nomination? Uh, I, I hate to, I hate to bet on her competence in any, <laughs> any realm. Um, the, um, I, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, I think I will go with my heart and not my head on this one, it, though it's strange to talk about thinking in your brain when you're talking about Marsha Blackburn, but I, I think Fincher might upset her, but, uh, oh. I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think he, yeah, uh, he might dust, dust her up on opioids and, uh, he's got a pretty good profile. <laughs> he, he, he's, a, he's also uh, a guy who was in, con- was in Congress and, and quit after two or three terms and, He's a gospel mm-hmm. singer from Frog Jump, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Well, with that, I will send it back over to, to Catherine or to David, whoever wants to ask any more questions. I don't have any more questions tonight. Yeah, and, and um, John, I think you've done a great job covering everything. Uh, I do want to tell you, for some reason, you do Justin Canoe's race. Don't forget the old canoe cologne commercials. Uh, Class oh, C, come on over. I don't remember the other. If you can somehow work that in, I don't know if it's a winner, but man, I remember those. Yeah, well, well um, I know it, you, it, you don't, it's, don't only work. It's definitely, it's definitely a, di- a district where a lot of people still wear a canoe, so that, that could be a secret <laughs> weapon. <so. laughs> well, that might fit in. Well, well, John, you've done a great job on Tennessee telling us about it. We'll probably need to get you back on there. Plus, we know from one of the last times you came home or came on, you uh, work other states. You had a lot of Ohio work. So we're also going to have to find out where all, where all you're working. And next time you come on, incorporate some of that. Sure. Absolutely. Glad glad to be of service. Keep swinging. Proud of you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Thanks sir. Again. Talk to you later. Good night. Yes. Tonight, that was John Rowley, media, uh, um, media political creator extraordinaire. Um, let's go ahead and uh, kind of piggyback onto that discussion. Uh, we talked about Fulbrightson, and we know Tennessee is one of those states that you. I, it's almost a half win if you're going to take back the U.S. Senate. Uh, there yeah. might be other routes, but they seem more mm-hmm. difficult uh, without Tennessee. Um, so fortunate that Phil Bredesen's going to be on the ballot to where that's a you know pretty doable thing. Um, but let's kind of go then through the map. One of the key things is holding what you got. And Heidi Heidekamp's running in North Dakota, very popular for a Democrat in that very Republican state. Joe Manchin is also very popular in a hard-trending Republican state of West Virginia. And Claire McCaskill – she never polls very well, and she's kind of struggling this time in Missouri, but she just has such political luck in running in the correct years, and this seems like a, the correct year to be a Democrat. There may be other Democrats that are at risk. I just cannot for the life of me put Bill Nelson on that list. Um, Catherine, do you kind of see those as the main three Democrats that we need to protect, or would you add to that list? And what are some of your thoughts on those three races? 
Yeah, those are those seem to be the most important races to focus on. Um, I haven't looked at all the um, polling and data and everything on all the other states, but I think you know if we can focus on those and also provide support to the other um, maybe less contentious races, then I think we have a good shot at getting the Senate back. Yeah. Tim, kind of break down the holds. Um, those um, main yeah, three, do you, you add anything to it? Well, Joe Donnelly up in Indiana, we we might want to watch yeah. that one um, just because it's Indiana, the vice president's home state. Uh, I think McCaskill will be a very, very, very prime target. Uh, I think Tester out in Montana, who I was worried about, and Hot Camp, who I was worried about, I think both of them now might be okay. We need to keep our eyes on New Jersey and what's going on there with Senator Menendez. Uh, that seat may suddenly come open and may come open in a you know a pretty bad way. You know he's going to be retried and. Uh, so so we we we've got some some holes to fill as the Republicans do. This this is a this was supposed to be a good year for Republicans, you know, guys, because we are we're defending so many states and I'm going to tell you what in case of a massive blue wave the most seats we could possibly pick up in the US Senate I think is like four. And I'm talking about, you know, picking up the Tennessee seat and maybe knocking off somebody like Cruz. I mean, otherwise, we're looking at Nevada and Arizona, and I don't really see much else out there. Do you? David? Yeah, we'll get in. We'll get into part of that. Now, I do good call on Joe Donnelly. I think he's not very controversial, and that helps. And I and while. Um, and I think also Indiana's one of those states, it's not too much fluctuation. It doesn't go too, too red. It's never going to go too, too blue. Um, you know, but President Obama did win it in 28, which was a little bit of a surprise. So I think um, that's why it's definitely that fourth seat if you named one. Um, now, New Jersey, now the fear I think there was if Menendez um, got in trouble – and Chris Christie was governor. He appoints a Republican. Now, if Menendez, something happens there, Phil Murphy, a Democrat, appoints the successor. Then they hold a special election. So it's not like you could find that remaining popular Republican in New Jersey to appoint and then be running as an incumbent. So that's why I guess I don't think New Jersey is as much a target. I mean, what's, what's the best-case scenario for Republicans? You see, Tim, there in New Jersey. Well, the be the best case scenario would have to be that uh, Menendez is convicted, he is removed from office, and an and an angry public takes it out yeah. on on his successor in the same way that that uh, an angry group of Republicans uh, took it out on an appointed senator over here next door to us in Alabama, right? Yeah, but then, of course, that's where you had the um, the blue wave forming, and, of course, you had 
there ain't probably not a Roy Moore living in New Jersey. There's probably not a Roy Moore living in any of the 49 states except for Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is, is I remember one time watching a video, a documentary on Louisiana politics, and they said this was before Louisiana went as Republican as it has. Um, and they said, you know, there's really two parties in Louisiana. There's the um, kind of populist, you know, get things done, but it might be a little sleazy. And then there's the reformers, and they kind of go back and forth. Now that usually that would be two Democrats changing those roles. Later, some Republicans got put in the mix. In many ways, in both way, both both sides of that. But the reformer and the good government, even though Phil uh, Murphy's Democrat, and and you see some of that with Bob Menendez being kind of like the, you know, grease the wheels, and maybe Chris Christie kind of fit in that as a Republican. Phil Murphy seems to be more good government. So if something did happen to Menendez, Murphy puts in his guy, even though both of them are Democrats, his guy's going to be seen as more of the good government guy. And so the party labels don't matter as much. From what y'all know about Louisiana and New Jersey politics, Catherine, does that make any sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. It might be a little too um, inside baseball for some voters who are just going to say, oh, the Democrat, you know, the Democrat screwed up, so I'm going to vote for the Republican, not looking beyond the actual – you know, abilities and um, perspective of that. But, I mean, I think you make a good point. I'm not denying the point. I just, I'm just, i just not sure that everyone looks that closely at a race. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know well, we, we think a lot about, more about it. Well, Tim? Look, look um, in order to have any opportunity at all to – win control of the U.S. Senate. We have to first and foremost defend and hold every last seat that we have that's up this year. We don't need any surprises. We certainly don't need to be expending any resources in the state of New Jersey. Uh, We've got to hold every last seat. We lose even one. Even one, and and that probably kills any chance we have of taking control of the of the Senate. And it, and in a wave election, you really want to do that. So you know that that's the big thing this year. It, the the first and yeah. foremost, not not picking out the the targets of opportunity in the other party, but we've got to hold serve first and foremost. Yes. Well, well, guys, uh, we started this discussion about the U.S. Senate. We've talked about the defensive side for the Democrats. We hadn't talked about either, whichever way you want to say it, the offensive side for the Democrats, the Republican side, um, uh, the defensive side for the Republicans. So we have a little over a minute. I, I don't think we could go through um, any of those pickup opportunities for Democrats or seats that Republicans need to defend properly. So why don't we go ahead and close it off tonight, and then tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next week, Super Bowl Sunday, we'll figure out when we'll be on. That way, if it's a podcast, it won't matter. And we'll pick up that half of the discussion next week. Sound like a plan? Yes. Yeah, Sounds good. 
Yeah, so we'll have that and much, much more next Sunday on the Kudzu Vine. Good night, everybody. Good night, night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic experience.